Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Just before 7am on a chilly winter day, two groups of men boarded a train from the bustling trading town of Pueblo for El Moro, a sleepy mining town near the New Mexico border. These men, both on urgent business, were all travelling for the same reason. Theirs was a small world where everyone at least knew of one another, but neither side had apparently met before. Both knew what the other was planning, but apparently did their best to ignore the other's presence there. Soon they would be on opposite sides in a war and would know each other only too well. For now though, the men took their seats in the carriage and, one presumes, concentrated on the task ahead. That train, well, one very like it anyway, was what this business was all about and we'll come back round to this scene. But first, I needs must make a quick digression. From El Moro, we briefly detour to a prison cell in Komenaka, Russia, 17th September, 1938. An academic named Nikolai Kondratiev has been sentenced to death on the explicit orders of Stalin himself. In 1930, he'd fallen afoul of the authorities, who jailed him for eight years for his economic apostasy. While imprisoned, he wrote five books on his theories. By day's end, Stalin will have him executed by firing squad. His dangerous idea that had so offended Uncle Joe, well, in a nutshell. Kondratiev believed capitalist economies, besides their smaller, approximately six-year-long boom-bust waves, had longer, much bigger waves rolling along in the background. Every 40 to 60 years, an economy in recession from the previous long wave would innovate by combining existing technologies in new and exciting ways. This technological innovation would create a new boom, and with it, new ways of living, of working, and of even thinking about the world. Often the start is a bit shaky, followed by a decades-long trend of huge economic growth. Somewhere around halfway in, a jarring turning point occurs. From there on, we enter a decades-long collapse, which is often chaotic in nature. Ideas stagnate, hindered by the people who made a killing from the earlier innovations, now deciding to play it safe with their own money. Principally by putting money into the finance sector, where it is far less productive. In a Kondratiev wave, this eventually leads to another big crash. Now my view, not Kondratiev's, but these decline periods often see the most insane behaviour from these desperate entrepreneurs. Now this is followed by another burst of innovation which creates a boom and new ways of living, working and thinking about the world. This concept riled up Stalin, who only liked economic theories that don't claim capitalism will mutate into new models. His world theory needed an end point, where capitalism could no longer adapt where the workers of the world would finally cast off their chains and take the means of production off the rich. The idea Nikolai Kondratiev died for 
received mixed reviews by economists. A number of well-regarded economists took it up, but a greater number discarded it. One problem? You can broadly define these eras, but start and end dates can differ by several years depending on the theorist. It all seems a little fuzzy, a little unscientific. Kondratiev waves are too sketchy for most. Looking backwards, though, Kondratiev waves can occasionally be useful when trying to place a tale in its historical context. Though in all fairness to Mr. Kondratiev, it does not explain why two tycoons came down with a case of brainworms in the late 19th century. But anyway, uh, for context, under most Kondratiev models, the first big wave kicks off in Britain sometime between 1774 and 1790. The steam engine changed the world, but the factory was the star of the era. Innovations in the steam engine allowed engines to be used to power a factory full of machines by one long drive shaft. Several decades earlier, the first commercial steam engines drove pumps and coal mines, keeping the mines safe from flooding. This was not just a repurposing of that old technology, a great deal of innovation had gone into these engines. Steam-powered factories led to cheaper production of goods, and more importantly, the development of tool-making machinery, which itself drove further innovations. Now this all made use of other earlier innovations, such as Abraham Darby's coking process, which made the reliable production of iron an affordable alternative to brass. Iron goods could be churned out all day, so long as you had machine operators and someone to keep the furnace topped up with coal. And of course canals appeared across the land to transport goods. This also changed the way we travelled, and how we thought of distance between towns. It changed the way we lived, too. Large industrial cities arose, while agricultural centres withered away. One innovation vastly changed how we lived our lives and how we saw the world. Now in a break from the typical industrial revolution models, which put their second wave decades later, the second Kondratiev wave kicked off around 1850. Its most valuable technology was being seriously developed in the 1820s, but didn't take centre stage until the middle of the century. And what was this innovation? Well, someone took a steam engine and made it drive an iron horse along iron rails. The locomotive would go on to change the world. Now, we're really only interested in the history of trains in the USA today. So I'll quickly mention the first train in the USA was named Tom Thumb back in 1827. Tom Thumb had an underwhelming start. It raced against the horse and lost. But the locomotive age did leave the station proper in 1850. Well, at least it did first along the northern and the east coast cities. Throughout the 1850s, several competing railroad barons laid 30,000 miles of track in the region. It was a messy, chaotic affair, with many companies using their own track gauges. But adding this critical infrastructure kicked off an industrial revolution in the USA. Factories proliferated. As the century rolled on, Americans were told to go west to find their fortunes. There was huge opportunity in the 
supposedly uninhabited, expanse that President Thomas Jefferson bought from the French in 1803, and James Polk either bought off the English, or mostly seized from Mexico in the mid-1840s. Of course, there were already plenty of people on these lands. We'll put a pin in that subject for now. In the midst of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln launched the first of several homestead acts. They gave people free land if they settled it and held onto it for five years. Gold strikes and other mineral windfalls like the California Gold Rush of 1848 were pull factors that brought people in. Sometimes folk arrived due to push factors, like the thousands of Mennonites who fled Russian persecution in Russia and Ukraine in the late 1870s for the plains of Kansas. They brought a wheat seed with them, Turkey Red, which grew so successfully, Kansas was soon producing a fifth of all American wheat. And in places like Wyoming, cattle barons made a killing, radically changing how Americans ate. But those killings, well, they're another tale we'll put a pin in for now. The railroads boomed post-Civil War and played a major role in settling people out west. Well, at least until it didn't. Rail eventually connected the east and west coasts of America. Although a side note, the first attempt to do so, the Union Pacific Railroad, was disastrous. Starting in 1862, the Union Pacific laid track in places that were inaccessible in winter. They conspicuously wasted a lot of money and chose awful places for railroad towns along the way. Most of their picks became ghost towns within a couple of years of incorporating. Now bringing us back to the Kondratiev wave, 1873 was the turning point of the second wave, and the Union Pacific played a huge role. The Union Pacific Railroad was caught paying off politicians. The scandal crashed the railroad, which took down a bank, and the collapse of that one bank wiped out 40 more banks in turn. 5,000 businesses went broke in the wake of the Union Pacific crash. $250 million in 1873 dollars was wiped out almost overnight, leading to the stock market closing down for 10 days in a row. Unemployment spiked at 14%. The Panic of 1873, as it came to be known, was to that date the biggest economic downturn in American history. Now the ghost of the Union Pacific was resurrected by the diabolical figure of railroad baron Jay Gould. Waiting in the wings for his chance, he bought them out for a bargain basement price. Now I'd like to think the panic was a lesson to the other railway barons on the importance of building railway towns that were worth a damn in places where people wanted to live and of not getting involved in questionable behaviour. Now we're working our way towards the latter, at least. Of the former, I should mention, the railways were not just providers of infrastructure. They were one of the nation's biggest groups of land developers. They bought land very cheaply. Before the 1870s, land was just given to them in 10-mile square blocks. They built towns as they went, selling on properties for huge profits, which finally brings us back to the men on the train to El Moro, Colorado. One party was a surveyor named Ray Morley, 
and A.A. Robinson, the chief engineer for the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad. The other, the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad's J.A. McMurtry and the work crew. The Rio Grande Railway was the brainchild of General William Palmer, a Civil War hero who found peacetime work in the railroad industry. In 1871, he struck out on his own into the Colorado area, laying a small of an average-gauged boutique track through the state. Palmer was not a terribly well-loved man, owing to having played hardball over which towns would and wouldn't get trains following the Panic of 1873. This was keenly felt in Canyon City, who Palmer snubbed after they refused to pay him a million dollars for a train line. Also, unlucky in love, General Palmer met and fell in love with the daughter of a Pennsylvanian politician named Mary Lincoln Mellon, known to friends as Queenie. She accepted his marriage proposal just two weeks after they first met, but then got cold feet and refused to move to some rustic frontier town. He built Queenie, the town of Colorado Springs, solely to woo her. Queenie married the general and moved to Colorado Springs. But by all accounts, she hated it there. Their marriage slumped into lovelessness and infidelity. The Santa Fe Railroad also started off as a pet project of a larger-than-life figure. In this case, Cyrus Holliday, the first mayor of Topeka, Kansas. But over time, the Santa Fe became a faceless corporation run by a board of directors in Boston. These board members were initially hands-on, but then the railroad developed the cattle town of Dodge. Dodge was most definitely not Colorado Springs, and soon devolved into the stereotypical Wild West town of Western movies, full of saloons, gamblers, working girls, and gunfights at high noon. The board decided they really didn't want to know what was going on in Dodge and handed all the day-to-day management over to a general manager. After several failed attempts to clean up Dodge, the town appointed Wild West legends Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson as deputies, which calmed Dodge down somewhat. Throughout the 1870s, a smart, decisive company man, although hardly a larger-than-life show pony, rose through the ranks of the Santa Fe. This manager, and soon-to-be General Palmer's nemesis, was William Barstow Strong. The two men met for the first time in 1877, where Strong offered a decent sum of money to lease the Rio Grande off Palmer, making a lifelong enemy in the process. Strong may as well have asked to rank Queenie while he was at it. Although not a lot is documented about Strong's personal life, It seems reasonable to leave him simply a big cog in a bigger, faceless machine. Both companies had long-term plans to push beyond the boundaries of the state. They even hoped to reach the West Coast one day, but both companies were badly hurt by the Panic of 1873. Their plan in the short term appeared to be to work on smaller projects. But would it really hurt to send someone to look at a path into New Mexico? There was really only one suitable path, to follow the old, treacherous Santa Fe Trail, and then cross the Raton Pass into New Mexico.
In the early 1870s, General Palmer had sent an employee named William Bell out and about with a camera, including out of a Raton Pass. At the time, he had the area scoped out and noted a possible route through. In 1877, William Barstow Strong sent out Ray Morley, disguised as a Mexican shepherd, to survey the pass. Morley did his best to stay incognito, although he got caught by the owner of the pass, a man named Uncle Dick Wooten. Morley and Wooten became friends, and Wooten agreed to sell Morley's employers the land if they made an offer. Word got out that Strong was preparing to make for the pass. Palmer reacted by preparing to send McMurtry out, and neither faction could really afford to take this project on, but both felt they could not afford to miss out on the opportunity to the other. So it was they piled onto a train to El Moro on a cold, snowy February morning. The train pulled up at El Moro in the dark, and the parties disembarked. McMurtry looked to Morley, and Judge of Santa Fe had no work crew, so figured he was free to get a good night's sleep at a hotel. Little did he know A.A. Robinson had already put together a crew from Trinidad, Colorado, another town which had an axe to grind over General Palmer's business practices. Morley, Robinson, and the Trinidad crew took a carriage full of tools up to Uncle Dick Wooten's house. It was after 10pm when they arrived, but Uncle Dick welcomed his friends in. Wooten was allegedly offered $50,000 for the pass, but bargained himself down to $25 a month for groceries, until he, then his wife, and then finally his daughter passed on, and lifetime passes for the family, giving them unlimited travel on Santa Fe trains. Uncle Dick really didn't need the money. Now this stipend would increase over the years. It was up to $75 a month when his daughter passed on in 1930. Uncle Dick unearthed the first sod of ground at 2am, 27th February, 1878, and the crew got to work laying track in all the key places. In the morning, a furious McMurtry discovered that they had been beaten to the punch. He wired the general, we told him to keep the crew there for now. Palmer had McMurtry searching round for another overlooked southwestern pass, all to no avail. It was then that another opportunity arose, and things went truly off the rails. If you had ambitions to build a railroad track from Colorado out to the west coast, you could head southwest to the Raton Pass, or you could go west through an area called the California Gulch. This direction made a lot of sense in the 1860s. Gold was found in Pueblo in 1859, causing a stampede of 10,000 prospectors to the area. In the following decade, $2.5 million, around $100 million today, was extracted from the surrounding area. That area got picked clean of gold within a few years, and most of the prospectors left. A few hardy souls did stay on, with a new plan. Some believed large deposits of silver were out there. Unlike gold, silver usually lurks in dull grey veins below ground, never by itself, but alloyed to base metals like lead. First you need to dig it out, 
then have someone examine the specimen for silver content and then send their alloy to a smelter to extract the silver from the rest of that junk. In spice of silver being far more common than gold, it was also far more labour intensive to work. Silver had fallen out of favour in past decades. The USA had a silver standard from the 1780s based around the Spanish silver dollar, but it became neglected in the 1860s. Silver was then demonetized during the Panic of 1873. In 1878, with money people looking for more ways to invest their cash in finance, and remember we're now on the downward slope of the Kondratiev wave, this is what people do, the Silver Standard made a comeback via the Bland-Allison Act of February 1878. This was the perfect time for a couple of dirt-poor prospectors to roll up to the general store in Leadville, Colorado. Legend has it these men were looking for provisions and tools, and in lieu of actual money, promised the proprietor a third of whatever they found with those tools. The proprietor, one Horace Tabor, not only took this offer, but threw in a bottle of whiskey as well. Story goes, these two prospectors drank as they walked into the wild, and when they became fall-down drunk, they, well, fell down drunk, and slept where they lay. The next morning, figuring this was as good a spot as any to start, they dug a hole, and a few feet down, struck the biggest ever silver reserve the USA had found. They honored their promise to Horace, who invested his windfall in other sites soon becoming one of America's richest men. The discovery kicked off a silver rush, which saw the former ghost town's population balloon enough for politicians to debate moving the state capital to Leadville. In the future, Mayor Tabor would even build an impressive opera house in Leadville. This was great news for General Palmer. Not only could he make a killing transporting all their alloy to the smelters, he knew there would be a rush of people relocating to Leadville. He stood to make a killing if he could extend his lines from Canyon City out into the mining town. They would have to build through a narrow pass through the high cliffs of the Royal Gorge, but the company plotted this out in 1872. The gorge gets so narrow at times, only one track was possible, and like the Raton Pass, it is the only way through. But the effort would be well worth it. He presumed Strong would be caught up in the Raton Pass for some time. But all the same, he quietly gave the orders to prepare for the California Gulch. The spy versus spy activity kicked off again. Both sides sent encrypted telegraphs to their backers and did their best to intercept the other's messages. On April 19th, Santa Fe Chief Engineer A.A. Robinson Notice J.A. McMurtry and his crew, formerly skulking round El Moro since they lost the pass, were nowhere to be seen. He soon discovered they were packing up and waiting for a train to Canyon City via Pueblo. William Barstow Strong ordered Robinson to do the same, but Palmer's men refused to let them buy a ticket. Strong contacted Ray Morley, who was then out of town on other business, to get to Canyon City as soon as he could. Morley booked a private train to Pueblo, waiting for Palmer's men stationed at the telegraph office to go out for lunch first. He got his train to Pueblo, where unbeknownst to his enemy, he had a horse stabled. Some time back, he'd bought a stallion named King William, 
very cheaply from an English expatriate living in Colorado Springs. Morley galloped into the dark towards Canyon City. In the meantime, McMurtry and his gang were on the train, first to Pueblo, and then after a changeover, onto Canyon City. On the way, he discovered Morley was headed their way, and resolved this time not to rest. As soon as the men reached Canyon City, they made for the Royal Gorge, only to find Morley had beaten them to it again. He'd arrived on horseback and then rushed out to hire a work crew. As with the people of Trinidad, all he had to do was mention General Palmer's name, and volunteers lined up to stick it to the general. Morley's crew had a half-hour head start, but at this point there was enough room in the gorge to lay two tracks near one another. This time McMurtry ordered his crew to start laying tracks alongside the Santa Fe. For now, the two sides slogged along, less than a gunshot distant from one another. The Royal Gorge War began in the law courts. General Palmer filed an injunction, claiming he'd laid claim to the Royal Gorge in 1872. Strong's lawyers were prepared, and countered that Palmer had never filed a proposed route with the land office. So the claims really should go to them having broken ground first. In the interim, the judge ordered the Rio Grande to stop work immediately. J.A. McMurtry ignored the order and was arrested. His arrest led to a fistfight between the Santa Fe and Rio Grande crews. Tensions escalated with Palmer's crew cutting Strong's telegraph lines, vice versa. The management took to buying the opponent's workers off them for exorbitant salaries. This all made for an awkward work atmosphere by day, as the two crews continued to build alongside one another. By night, the two camps posted armed guards. The guard posts were close enough that the guards regularly dared the other side to just go on and take a shot. As everyone waited on the courts, General Palmer sent a gang up into the clifftops, several hundred feet above the lines. The men built a fort and threw rocks down on the Santa Fe rails, causing a landslide. Strong reciprocated, sending Morley up the other side with his own gang. They built their own fort and threw their own rocks at the Rio Grande tracks. Men in forts fired shots upon the men in the other forts and waited for things to escalate. When the courts came back with a decision, nobody was happy. Both companies were allowed to build their own line, but when the gorge reached pinch points, where only one line was possible, a gauge which accommodated both companies' trains had to be used. General Palmer was apoplectic and lodged an appeal. In the meantime, the state militia was sent in to keep the peace, and the gangs and the forts were ordered away. But this ugliness continued, the Royal Gorge made up only 20 miles of the journey to Leadville. Once clear of the gorge, the advantage would be Palmer's. The tracks to Canyon City were Rio Grande tracks, and he could slow the Santa Fe down by refusing their cargo on his trains. This caused Strong to go to his backers for more money. He then threatened to build lines alongside every last mile of Rio Grande line. This would cost a fortune, but would have put an end to the Rio Grande. The Santa Fe had bigger trains running on regular sized tracks, so they could carry more cargo. Their carriages were more spacious. 
Both men chased up more money from their backers. Some of that money was now going into the hiring of gunslingers for security. Now at this time, a war wouldn't seem altogether unreasonable to either man. Just across the border in Lincoln County, New Mexico, a war broke out between two business factions in July 1878. An Englishman named John Tunstall arrived from Santa Fe and opened a dry goods store in 1876. He threatened to break the monopoly of the Irish Catholic businessman then running the county. Tunstall's 1878 murder kicked off a war that would eventually lead to the deaths of 23 men and left dozens more seriously injured. The deaths included the legendary outlaw Billy the Kid. The Lincoln County War was too wild for the lawmen to rein us in and only ended when the army were deployed in 1881. Palmer and Strong knew they could ramp it up to a couple of hundred men a side if needed, and if they did so, no local sheriff or court could stop them. In the meantime, the crews built onwards towards Leadville. General Palmer waited for his appeal to reach the Supreme Court. By October, everyone was still tense. The Santa Fe, by far the wealthier corporation, stayed the course. General Palmer, on the other hand, was nearly broke. His share price had taken a tumble, and financial backers were now demanding he put an end to the feud. William Barstow Strong complicated matters by sending a message to the Rio Grande. Again, he offered to lease the company off them for a 30-year term. Palmer fought the offer, but the investors insisted that the Rio Grande be leased to the Santa Fe. A figure was agreed upon. General Palmer insisted Strong pay the lease monthly. Strong agreed. Palmer also insisted that the Rio Grande keep building towards Leadville, and that once the lease ran out, he expected the Rio Grande would take those lines back. Strong agreed to let the Rio Grande continue building, but in no way would they ever keep the line to Leadville. Panicked and looking to buy more time, Palmer rushed to Boston in November. He demanded a cash bond of $150,000 to cover any future damage to Rio Grande equipment. This was reluctantly agreed to, but the Santa Fe board told Palmer they would pay half now and the other half when he handed the keys over. Palmer continued to find ways to drag his feet, but this only tanked the stock price further. The investors had had enough and they demanded Palmer hand the keys over on December 1st, 1878. He did so only at the stroke of midnight on the 14th of December. But General Palmer was not done yet. He refused to cash the Santa Fe's monthly checks. Palmer would claim the Santa Fe defaulted on their payments, and then he planned to tear the lease up and repossess the business. Strong responded by putting ticket prices up on all Rio Grande trains. Where the two had coexisting services, this drove businesses to the Santa Fe trains. And where the Santa Fe didn't, in towns like El Moro, locals packed up and left in droves. This turned a number of settlements into ghost towns. Colorado newspapers generally turned against the Santa Fe. Reporters branded them greedy and heartless. Many of the people of Colorado started to remember General Palmer fondly and wished he could take his railway back off the Santa Fe. Meanwhile, dozens of men of violence loitered, waiting for orders. 
They drank and got ornery and continued to make locals nervous. The Supreme Court finding loomed, but General Palmer was at the end of his tether. He continued to discard the Santa Fe checks and sent his men out to hire an army of gunslingers to repossess his railway. Strong reciprocated by adding to his own army. A fortune was spent by both sides on hundreds of men, guns, and armories full of ammunition. Thuggish men like Bath Masterson and Doc Holliday awaited orders at several key locations. Tensions rose and a handful of gunfights broke out in the streets between the armies. Then on April 21st, 1879, the Supreme Court announced their decision. They sided with the Rio Grande over ownership of the Royal Gorge Line. But did this actually mean anything, given the Rio Grande was now under Santa Fe control? The Supreme Court gave no opinion on that. In May, the armies prepared for war. Strong went to the county clerk to call in the state militia, only to find the Rio Grande had kidnapped him. Again, telegraph lines came down. On June 11th, General Palmer sent his army to repossess his property. Palmer's army closed in on all the stations, and Strong's men fought back, opening fire on the invaders. But as a rule, as soon as they were served legal papers to cease and desist, they laid down their guns and left. After several ugly standoffs, papers were eventually delivered to besiege Santa Fe gunmen. In Pueblo, things did look to get really nasty. Both armies had close to 100 men aside. The Santa Fe army, led by Bat Masterson, was holed up in a roundhouse used to move trains around. The armies exchanged gunfire with one another. Eventually, J.A. McMurtry's men forced the door open and then flooded in to take the roadhouse. Papers were served. This is where I have to throw a Deus Ex Machina into the mix. Or should that be a Diabolus Ex Machina? A demon on a wire. The constant fighting left the Rio Grande drained of funding. William Barstow Strong still had a lease on their property and would eventually send in his own people to repossess them back again. Not a lot of business was going on for the Rio Grande when the stations were packed out with armed men looking for a fight. To preempt Strong, Palmer put the Rio Grande into receivership. He had a friend lined up to be the receiver, but the courts insisted they should have their own receiver, someone who would refuse to be Palmer's puppet. General William Palmer had finally managed to tank his own railway. The Santa Fe looked on as the diabolical figure of Jay Gould swooped in to pick over the carcass. Jay Gould was the king of the American railway. In a world full of larger-than-life figures, Gould was quiet and unassuming, even whispered in conversation. But due to his terrifying ruthlessness, an extremely formidable figure, He'd been watching the proceedings and decided the best tactic was to buy out the Rio Grande shares once they hit rock bottom. With a controlling stake, he called Palmer and Strong to his office to lay down the law. The robber baron's terms were as follows. Both companies would cease litigation immediately. The Santa Fe would hand all the Rio Grande's tracks and equipment back to them. If they didn't, Gould would reach into his considerably deeper pockets 
and build his own lines alongside Santa Fe lines. He would then run those rails as cheaply as was needed to put the Santa Fe out of business. The Rio Grande would get the line through the Royal Gorge, but have to pay the Santa Fe $1.4 million for their trouble. From here on in, the Rio Grande would only build north of Pueblo, the Santa Fe south of Pueblo. Neither tycoon had a choice but to accept Gould's terms of surrender. Now as a coder, somewhere in Leadville, in amongst the hired thugs awaiting orders, is a young man with a singular skill set. He'd come to Leadville with high hopes of finding silver, but ended up doing little more than moving a lot of dirt around. When the tycoon sent men out to find gunslingers, he happily volunteered. As a skilled sharpshooter, what we'd now call a sniper. I've got a few Wild West tales to share over the following year, maybe year and a half. The next chapter will be much later in the year, but this man will intersect with all of them. As a gun for hire, he'll murder dozens of men before he faces his moment of truth. But we've got a lot of ground to cover before we even get to his tale. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.